0: Um, Today we're going to need a Bible probably so um, if you can find whatever version you prefer on your smartphone, iPad, laptop computer. Yes there are people here with laptop computers or maybe even the Pew um, Bible right there near you and um, we'll see how we get on. The Bible, as we've looked at on numerous occasions, is full of heroes, both male and female. And those heroes follow a very distinct and predictable path. And the path is the calling of the hero, the challenge of the hero, and the completion of the hero's journey. This pattern established in scripture over many thousands of years has been so ingrained into the thinking of just about every culture around the world but certainly Western culture that almost every country song, every rap, every movie or TV series follows the same narrative flow. There's a call, there's a challenge, and there's a completion. And of course, in the, in the midst of that, that great narrative arc that, that all of us are uh, aware of, although maybe not thinking of very often, all of us are aware of this, we're, we're conscious that it's at, the, it's at the middle part of the story when things begin to get interesting. It's the second act of the play when things begin to kind of really get nitty-gritty. It's in the middle of the story when we begin to see, if you like, the cards of all of the players displayed. Today, we're going to look at Peter, a very familiar hero, and we're going to look at the, at the thing that Peter is most remembered for. Peter, of course is the great leader of the earliest expression of the Christian church right after the day of Pentecost when the Spirit fell upon the gathered believers and they were compelled and projected onto the streets of Jerusalem and into the world to share the gospel of Jesus. Peter, of course, is that leader. But the thing that he's remembered for the most are the three denials that that he gave when he was challenged about being a follower of Jesus as Jesus was being tried before the high priest and before Pilate it seems a shame that that's the thing that we remember most about this this great hero and for me the real problem about it is that we almost completely misunderstand what the denials were about It's almost as though we have gone for the simple explanation and we've misunderstood the psychology of the average person and certainly the psychology of a man like Peter which is so clearly portrayed for us in the scriptures. Peter almost certainly in my opinion did not deny Jesus because he was afraid. It wasn't anything to do with fear at all. And today, we're going to look at what it was that was in the fabric of Peter's heart and mind. And we're going to understand how it is that as Peter went through this journey, this journey that was particularly focused in these 24, 48 hours around the crucifixion of Jesus, how that prepared him to be the world changer he became. Every person in this room is called by God to a unique calling, a unique task, a special assignment. That destiny is fulfilled by faith. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing is something that we need to learn to do and today we're going to look at the life of Peter and understand it afresh. So if you're up for the journey, that's what we're going to do. Everybody ready? John chapter 13 and verse 31. When Judas was gone, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children... I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so that you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Simon Peter asked, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. So let's... Um, Let's think a little bit about Peter. This is the the chapter in John where we look at Jesus predicting the, the denial of Peter three times which will take place in the next few hours. But Peter has been introduced in this chapter in his conversation with Jesus at the very beginning. You remember last week where Jason so helpfully illustrated the the event that took place at the beginning of the Last Supper. Jesus takes the the role of a servant, gets a bowl of water, ties a towel around his waist, and then washes the feet of the disciples. Peter, in verse 6, says, Lord, Are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you can have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, A person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. Peter is impetuous. Peter is self determined. Peter is more than likely a self made man. If you visit the location of the traditional home of Peter, which by all archaeological logic is actually the home of Peter, you see the home of a fairly wealthy businessman. This is somebody who has done well in his chosen profession, in his chosen trade. It's a hard job, but he's clearly done well in following it and so Peter like so many others of that ilk is a person who has his own opinions about everything Peter has an opinion about what it is that Jesus needs to do in his life Peter thinks that he knows better than Jesus what it is that Jesus needs to be doing you can't wash my feet. Well, if I, if I don't wash your feet, then you can't really have any part in me. Well, if, you, if I can't have any part in you, then you better wash all of me. Peter, you don't need a bath. You've already had that. My presence has saved you. My work on the cross redeems you. What you need is to understand what it is that I'm doing for you here. What I'm showing you how to do is how to love one another. A command that I'll give you and the other disciples so that the world will know that you are my followers. I'm showing you how to love one another by removing the things that cling to us from our engagement in the day. But you're connected to me because you're cleansed by me and it's my work And it's my opinion that counts. You may think that the guilt that you hold from the past is significant in your relationship with me, but it isn't. You may think that the anxiety that you have about what it is that you've done or not done is significant in your relationship with me, but it isn't because I've dealt with it It's my job And your opinion doesn't count Your opinion However well crafted Well thought However careful and reflective Is not as important As my opinion Especially when it comes To the work of connecting you And me To the Father Only I can do that And it's not about what you feel, it's about what I've done. And if you'll embrace what it is that I've done, in time, you'll begin to feel what it is that I've done. You see, here's the problem, and it's so obvious in the life of Peter. This person with this complex personality, like all of us, assumes that... His perception of the world is the one that determines his world. He assumes that his place in the world needs to be at the center of his world so that he can decide with careful thought and with some determination what it is that he needs to do. Jesus says, Peter, you don't know what you need I do you need to allow me to define the connection that there is between you and I and you need to allow me to tell you what it is that you need to do to live out the life of discipleship that I've called you to because if you don't you're gonna end up relying on yourself and relying on yourself will lead you down a perilous path, a path that will break your heart. Peter, he hears Jesus at the end of this conversation give the most amazing statement, a new commandment I give you. Just think about it for a moment. He's a Jewish person. He knows what the law is. He knows that the law has been given down through the centuries and has been lived out by his people in a way that identifies them as being different from everybody else on the planet. The law has been established. The law is settled. The law is finished. The law cannot be added to or taken away. In fact, if you read the Scriptures carefully, the Scriptures say unequivocally that if you attempt to add anything to the law... You'll be cursed. And so Jesus goes ahead and says, Oh, by the way, I'm just about to add to the law. Now, for a Jewish person, that would be probably the most important thing that they've ever heard in their life. And then Jesus says, And the addition to the law is that you love one another and demonstrate that you're my disciples. Peter completely ignores that. He says, where are you going? Am I I coming too? You can almost hear the edge of exasperation in what it is that Jesus says. Peter, you're thinking about the wrong stuff. You're gonna get yourself into trouble Let's look at another example of Peter at the center of his world that takes place just in these next few, these next few hours. Uh, let's look together at John 18. John 18 and verse 10. What's happened is they've had the Last Supper together. Jesus has instituted the Lord's Supper. He's washed their feet. He's given them bread and wine. He has walked through the streets of Jerusalem, past the temple resplendent in in the light of a thousand lamps. This beautiful, beautiful structure on which is emblazoned the symbol of Israel, the vine, engraved in gold and silver all around this marvelous edifice. And Jesus speaks about himself being the true vine, and his disciples being the branches, and his father being the vine dresser. And as they walk through the streets of Jerusalem, they're walking towards their favored campsite in the olive groves. And as they walk and arrive, Jesus begins to pray what is called the high priestly prayer. An amazing prayer that speaks about his relationship to the Father, his relationship with his disciples, and the prayer that he has for the disciples yet to be won. And then, through the olive grove, the torches can be seen as the company of soldiers and religious officials make their way towards Jesus And Judas indicates who Jesus is by giving him a kiss. You betray me with a kiss, my friend? Peter, still at the center of his world, decides the best thing for him to do is to cut the things out of it that he doesn't want. Now, this is what happens when you're at the center of your world. You look at your world and you think, well, I don't like that, so I'm gonna cut that out. And I don't like that, and, I'm going to, and I don't like her, so I'm going to, and I don't like him, and I... You see, anything that begins to threaten your sense of independence at the center of your universe Begins to be something that you need to cut away. Peter draws a sword and strikes the servant of the high priest. He's not very good at cutting things away, he just takes his ear. Jesus tells Peter to put his sword away. What are you doing? Some kind of idiot. He fixes the ear and protects the disciples who, of course, are afraid that they're going to be carried away with Jesus. You see, this this sense of self-protection, this sense of needing to protect Jesus means that Peter is in the place where he thinks that that's his role. Self-protection and protection of Jesus is the thing that he thinks he needs to be doing. Actually, what's going on is that Jesus is surrendering his life and protecting his disciples at the same time. He says to those who've come to get him, he says, let these men go. You don't need them, you only need me. And so Jesus is taken prisoner. He's carried away by the crowd And as he's carried away by the crowd, a couple of his disciples, those that are not scattered, choose to follow along to where Jesus is going to be tried. It's the home of Caiaphas, the high priest, a family of great nobility and of enormous institutional power. His father-in-law, Annas, is like a a kind of co-regent in Israel at the time. Jesus will be taken from pillar to post, from one person to the next, to Herod and then to Pilate. John, who's indicated in the text as the disciple that Jesus loves, follows along behind. He comes to the courtyard guarded with a wall and a gate And he's given admittance. It says because he's known to the family. Now, scholars have speculated as to how this could be. John is not of the same echelon within society as the high priest. So it's perhaps only because of business that he's known. Maybe he is the supplier of fish to the home of the high priest. Another indication of the status of these businessmen who are following Jesus. The girl at the gate says to Peter when he tries to gain admittance, are you a follower too? In other words, she knows that John is a follower and John has gained admittance and has actually been let into the courtroom Because he's the one who gives all of the eyewitness accounts of what it is that's said there. Peter is not given admittance because they don't know who he is. So you're one of the disciples as well, are you? No. John says that he's allowed in, so he comes in. And he stands around warming his hands on a fire. This is a kind of common seen in many different places at many different times in history the people who are if you like functioning outside of the normal routines of life have a way of building and conducting their little ecosystem that's that's got enough comfort for them even though their job is uncomfortable somebody on the night shift no doubt will bring you a cup of coffee even though it's not really allowed. There they are, warming their hands by the fire. It's a particular kind of fire, and we'll talk about it again when we come to John chapter 21, because it's only mentioned twice in the whole Bible. It's a charcoal fire. Peter's warming his hands. You're a a disciple, aren't you? No. Then somebody else comes over and says, I'm certain you are. You're a disciple, aren't you? Peter is still at the center of his world. When you're at the center of your world, you tell God what it is that he needs to do for you. You need to get rid of this bit of guilt. You need to get rid of this particular problem that I've been carrying around. And, and God says, well, I've already dealt with that. When you're at the center of your world, you, you tend to carve up the things that you don't want there you protect yourself because of course this perilous position of being in charge of your life means that you often feel vulnerable you often feel scared you often feel as though you're overwhelmed why? because you're not supposed to be at the center of your world it's not your place you can't do it but what else do you do? well you try to figure things out. Here's, here's, here's Peter. He's, he's at the center of his world. He's trying to tell God what he, what he needs. He's tried to protect Jesus. Imagine. The ruler of the universe. And now he's going to try to figure out how to set him free. Is there some fear I mean maybe but seriously he's walking into the lion's den he's not that afraid is he he's not a person that's particularly cultivated around fear he's he's somebody who wants to do the thing that he thinks he needs to do he's going to try and figure out how to get Jesus out of this And of course it leads him to deny the very person who in that moment is saving not only him but the entire world for always. One of the accounts makes it clear that when Jesus is going from one trial to the next he looks across just as Peter is denying him for the third time and the rooster is crowing. And Peter sees Jesus, and Jesus sees Peter. And Peter's broken-hearted. And the important thing about being broken-hearted is that you've been nudged off the throne of your life. So what does it look like for Peter, once he's been reinstated, and we'll look at that in a few weeks' time, what's it like for Peter who's been reinstated to allow Jesus to be at the center of his world. Well, what it looks like is that Peter becomes a person who literally changes the world forever. Look with me into the Acts of the Apostles. There, Peter is a central figure. And in the chapter that introduces Paul who's converted on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter nine, we see Peter being the pioneer of amazing things. In Acts chapter nine, verse 32, the story continues like this. As Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the saints in Lydda. That's That's a city near the coast of Israel. There he found a man named Aeneas, a paralytic who had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him. Look at it, look what it says. Jesus Christ heals you. Who is it that can heal? Peter? Peter, by now... has been heralded as this amazing saint because when he walks through the streets of Jerusalem his shadow cast on the sick will heal them. But how is it happening? Do you want to be more effective as a Christian? Do you want to have the power of God working through you? Well there's only one way. You have to connect the wiring in such a way that the power of the resurrection in you and available to you can flow through you. And unfortunately, we short-circuit that power by being at the center of our world. Don't ask why it is that God doesn't heal. Ask yourself, am I in the right position to be the instrument of his healing? That's a heavy question, but it's a valid question. Jesus Christ heals you. Let's continue. In Joppa, verse 36, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which when translated is Dorcas, which for English speakers doesn't help us at all. What it means is her name is Little Deer, Bambi. So here's Bambi, and she was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room, Then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called the believers and the widows and presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for a time with a tanner named Simon. That's important. We'll come back to that in a moment. Now, the way that the New Testament was written is kind of interesting because, of course, all of the letters were written first and then the New Testament leaders got round to writing up the story of Jesus because those who had the the memory of Jesus were beginning to get killed off and they needed to make sure that the stories and the, the whole sweep of the, the salvation history was gonna be remembered and understood by the early believers. And so Matthew, Mark, Luke and John began to compile their gospels at different stages in the first, history, uh, the first century's history. Perhaps the first of those gospels was Mark's gospel, and both the ancient church and contemporary scholars believe that Mark perhaps wrote down the sermons of Peter as he remembered his time with Jesus. Yeah? So if we want to know what's going on with Peter as he's raising Tabitha from the dead we maybe go back to Mark's gospel and see if there's anything that can help us. Yeah, you with me? Okay, let's go to Mark chapter four. Oh, no, Mark chapter five. And let's look at verse 39. He's gone to the home of Jairus. His daughter has now died. And it says this. Jesus went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out and took, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in to where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha, kum. Now Tabitha is little dear. Talitha is little girl. Yeah? And the difference is one letter. And the word kum is get up. And it's in the language of the area, Aramaic. So is Peter trying to come up with a new way to raise the dead? Or... Is he just going back in his memory to think. So how did Jesus do it? I know. He got rid of everybody in the room. That was weeping and wailing. Because that's not going to help. And then he said. Talitha cum. And as he's there kneeling. By the bedside of Tabitha. It's going through his mind. Talitha You see, Peter now had Jesus at the center of his world and the words and work of Jesus were defining what it was that he said and did. He didn't need to innovate. He didn't need to be creative. He just did what Jesus did. And what does this mean for Peter and for us? Well, what it means for us is that this couple of hundred people here this morning are here because of what happens next. I'm sure that perhaps some of you are of Jewish heritage, but the vast majority of us are of Gentile heritage. In other words, everyone else in the world. And up until this point, the only people that were regularly hearing the good news about Jesus were people of Jewish heritage. And someone had to be in a position where Jesus could speak to them and say, we need the rest of the world too. But to do that would mean the overturning of centuries of tradition Prejudice and frankly, racism. Okay, we said we were going to do a Bible study, so let's go back to the Acts of the Apostles and let's go to chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 9. Remember, Peter is in Joppa at the home of Simon the Tanner. Now, the fact that he's there is incredible because they're stinky places. I mean, you, you know, you'd think you'd go to the Hilton or something, but he's in the home of Simon the Tanner which is this stinky place. And it's already a place where he's beginning to break the kind of ceremonial laws that would keep a person clean because the home of a tanner meant that you're involved with all kinds of unclean stuff. He's up on the roof He's hungry and it's time for lunch. About noon the following day, this is verse nine, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went onto the roof to pray. There's some people coming from the home of Cornelius. He became hungry and wanted something to eat and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth By its four corners. It contained all kinds of four footed animals, as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. Then a voice spoke to him, one that was very familiar, one that all of the translators of the Bible recognize as the voice of Jesus, because it's in red letters in my Bible. Get up, Peter, kill, and eat. Peter replied, I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. Now let's just be quite clear. I nearly fell over then. Uh, let's be quite clear. What's about to happen in the conversation with Jesus breaks the rules. It breaks the rules. The rules are you're not allowed to eat the things that are in the sheet. And if you do you will put yourself in a position that means that you are unclean and if you continue that way, cursed by God. That's the the view. So what it is that's going to happen next is something that reverses about 2,000 years of history. What's going to happen next is that Peter is going to agree to something that everyone that he knows will believe it makes him a sinner it's impossible to underestimate what it is that's going on here for us as Gentiles we've been raised you know eating everything seriously you just can't do that You can't even contemplate living in a world where you are going to eat, consume the things that God has cursed, and you can't contemplate living in a world where your religious elders, your religious elite, and the traditions of the centuries tell you that you're different, superior, better, and therefore separate from, and need to say separate from, everyone else. I've never done that, says Peter. Then the same voice, Jesus. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times. And immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. Then the guys arrived from the home of Cornelius, the the Gentile centurion. They say he's had a vision of angels, he's asked for you, will you come? Usually the answer is no. Of course. But he goes and he begins sharing the good news about Jesus. And he doesn't even get to the appeal. He doesn't get to the good bits. In the middle of his sermon, the spirit falls upon the household of Cornelius and they're filled with the Spirit, and they begin speaking in tongues. It's a mini Pentecost amongst the Gentiles. Because God has decided to say, these people are clean, because I'm God, and I can say that. And I have... Taken the work of my son Jesus, and I've applied it to their lives, and they are cleansed, and they are made right, and they're one with me, and the Spirit fills them, and they're able to see in the signs and wonders of the Spirit that that's true. So here's the question Are the stories of the Bible there to tell you how amazing? the heroes are, or as an example of how you should live. Are the stories of the Bible written so that you can read about them and think how amazing these heroes were, or as an example to you? An example? Okay, so, you know, we're grateful, aren't we, that Peter's amazing? But, you know, it doesn't really change much, does it, in 2023? But if it's an example to us, then we probably ought to attend to it. Now, this is in the same same chapter, chapter 9, where Paul is on his way to grab imprison and kill Christians and without the four spiritual laws Jesus saves him transforms his life blinds him in the moment and tells him you're with me now buddy and he's like what? you're with me and you are my chosen instrument to go and change the world of the Gentiles. Okay, well, I can't see anything. And so he spends three days fasting and praying, no doubt realizing, oh my goodness, what have I done? Jesus is God. This changes everything. And then later on in the chapter, here's Peter. He's going he's to blaze the trail for you so that when Paul begins to do the crazy things that he does, Peter's going to be able to stand on his behalf and say, yeah, I mean, it, I'm sorry, guys. I probably let the cat out of the bag. It was me. Later on, Paul, writing in Romans, says this. What does not proceed from faith is sin. Yeah? Chapter 14, verse 23. What does not proceed from faith is sin. So you see, you're thinking, oh, you know, sins are the bad things I've done. Yeah. But actually, it's impossible to do anything other than sin If you don't have faith Because you live In the ecosystem of sin The only thing that pulls you out of that Is faith And it puts you into another ecosystem Which is called grace The grace in which we now stand Says Paul in Romans 5 It's a new location It's a a new world It's a, a new way of understanding life It's called grace And we get into grace by faith but where does faith come from? Well, what you've gotta do is you've gotta read the Bible and memorize all of it. Where does faith come from? Well, I, I mean, I, I need to take communion at least once a week. Where does faith come from? Well, you know, I have got baptized at least three times, I'm sure. Where does faith come from? Well by being good surely. Where does faith come from? Faith. That even if it's as small as a mustard seed. Can move a mountain. Where does it come from? Romans chapter 10. Verse 17, faith comes from hearing. Now, the translators of the NIV are just like you and me and they try to do a little bit too much sometimes. Because it says in my Bible, consequently, faith comes from hearing the message but then, I open up my, my Greek New Testament. Message isn't in there. Hang on a minute. The translators have added some words. Yeah, they think they're being helpful. Faith, pistis, comes from hearing. Akoe okay explain more and hearing through the word of Christ all right so you need to explain to me what's going on then well what's going on is this when you meet Jesus he speaks a clear word to you and the word to you means that you can now hear him it's no good saying to me, well, I don't know how to hear Jesus. I know that it's difficult. I know that this massively complex thing that is your life gets in the way, just like me. But God has created us as an instrument with emotions and feelings and senses and intuitions and understandings that are perfectly designed as a receiver of his communication that's why we're made this way you've been designed to be the receiver and the communicator with God the way that the Bible puts it is you're made in his image and when Jesus saves us he saves the image Faith comes by hearing And hearing by the word of Christ And the word there incidentally for those Greek scholars Is the word rhema not the word logos It's not actually referring to the Bible It's referring to the spoken word of Jesus to your heart It's the active, interpersonal communication of Jesus Himself to your life. Peter is prepared to break all the traditions. He's prepared to be excommunicated. He's prepared to be pilloried and persecuted by His people by entering the home of a Gentile to share the good news. By considering eating food that is castigated by God as cursed. Why? Because he can hear. And how does he hear? Because Jesus is at the center and he's at the edge. Do you see what it is that Jesus is doing? What Jesus is doing in the life of Peter is helping him to understand in the conversation about the foot washing in the conversation about the sword you idiot in the conversation about the denial that the thing that will define you is faith that comes by hearing the Bible of course communicates to us the word of God the Bible teaches us how to hear the voice of Jesus so friends do you want faith or do you want religion do you want something that pretty much everybody else in the world's got a kind of a a ritual life a life that gives you some sense of comfort a sense that you know perhaps everything's okay with the world because I'm doing the right things or do you want to be in direct communication with the creator and the redeemer of the world the latter bit is Christianity the former bit is what everybody else in the world's got And the reason, the reason that the early church was so unbounded in its early success was not because everybody had a Bible. I know it sounds terrible. I'm an evangelical. I believe in the Bible. Nobody had a Bible. There were no Bibles. The Bible was in the synagogue, one place. Cost tens of thousands of dollars in our world for hundreds of years the Bible was not available to anybody except the religious elite even in Christianity until Martin Luther came along supposedly coincidentally at the time that the printing press was invented in Western Europe nobody had access to a Bible that's only 500 years ago how the heck does this thing get going? I mean if we can't have Bible studies. What's, what are we going to do? The reason it got going. Was because people knew how to listen to the voice of Jesus. Why? Because they had examples all around them. Peter and Paul. Of how to shift the center of their gravity. So that they weren't the center of their will. But he was. They didn't define what was good or bad. He did. They didn't define what was sin or or cleansing. He did. They didn't define what was defendable or presentable. He did. They didn't define what faith was. He did. Because faith comes from hearing what he says. If you'll attend to what it is that I'm saying today, it will change your life. Because no longer will you live with this sense of anticipation of awfulness. No longer will you live with this constant anxiety about what might happen next. No longer will you be threatened and forced into the mold of the polarized world that we live in. No longer will you be looking for a voice on Fox News or CNN that somehow gives you comfort about what it is that the world's up to right now. Because you don't need it. Because you've got a different thing. You've got a better thing. You've got the voice of Jesus. And he gives you faith. And it changes everything. So as you meet in your house churches and households and discovery bible groups what are you doing you're doing the most important thing you can do attending to the voice listening for the voice and when you hear the voice it gives you faith and you won't care what other people think I was hauled in before the bishop this is the last thing I'll say today I was hauled in by the bishop, Church of England. I've been told from you know, the earliest years of being a believer in the Church of England that the bishop's the boss. The bishop hauls me in. He says, I want you to stop growing your church. I said, excuse me? Did you, did you say you want me to stop growing my church? She said, I want you to stop growing. It's threatening the other clergy. Okay, I, I don't know how to do that. Because it's, isn't it God who says he, isn't it, oh, wait a minute, one plants another waters, but only God gives growth. Isn't that, isn't that what it says? Yeah. He said, yes, 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 I know that. But, but, but I want you to stop growing. And I said, well, I, don't, I, don't, I can't do that. So you see the church, was just a you know a small Anglican church in Sheffield. You could get maybe 400 people in it. It was already t- filled four times over every day, every Sunday. It was just people everywhere. It was rapidly becoming the largest church in England. We had way more influence than anybody wanted us to have because our church was so much bigger than everybody else's. The average size congregation was 23. We had 3,000 people. What are we going to do? We've got to stop it. So the bishop gets his assistant bishop and the two archdeacons. Archdeacon, Gestapo, similar kind of idea. (laughs) He brings me into his wood-panelled office and says, I hear you're planning to rent that big gymnasium in the center of the city to worship in. You do realize it's next door to the cathedral, don't you? I said, yeah. (laughs) And with the utmost respect, I listened to what they said, and then said, Lord, Give me a word. And the Lord said this. Tell them it's for an experimental period. What a weird thing. Tell them it's for an experimental period. You see, they're all kind of couched in, in canon law. And so they don't want something to set a legal precedent by me moving into another person's parish. Yeah? They don't want to do that. And so I say, Bishop, it's for an experimental period. I didn't know what I was saying, really, I just... It's an experimental period. The bishop went, oh, oh, Mm. well, I don't think there's... And he looks at the other bishop, and the other bishop's going, And he looks at the archdeacon who looks so angry. Steam coming out of their ears, and they're like. So, well, if it's only an experimental period, I guess you better do it. (laughs) And there it was the mountain moved. Do you want to change the world? We're gonna see mountains move if you do. You see, the world can't have the same landscape that it has now, it has to be changed. The mountains have to be brought into the valleys. The valleys have to be raised up. And there have to be people who know how to do that. Not because they're cleverer than anybody else, but because they have the voice of Jesus that gives them the faith to change the world let's pray